is the law sin? Then he goes through this great careful explanation and now he says plainly, no, the law is holy. It's righteous. It is good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with our sinful fallen nature. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 7 of our study of the book of Romans, and yesterday we began a look at how the law is used even in the life of a believer as a guide to what is right and wrong. But salvation by grace through faith is by no means a license to sin. And as we pick up, Pastor Brogy illustrates from Philippians 3, 5, how even the Apostle Paul, who had a rich religious pedigree, relied not on the law, but on the grace of God for his salvation. When we read Paul's pre-conversion testimony, whether it's in Philippians 3 or in Galatians 1, you discover that he had a great track record. And even when he persecuted the church, he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 that he did it in ignorance. But somehow, God used that command, you shall not covet to poke his heart. Notice. By the way, this reminds me, let me just say parenthetically, of the rich young ruler. Remember him in Luke 18? He comes to the Lord Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear a false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he says, well, all these things I've done from my youth on up. And that was a true testimony. Outwardly, he had not committed adultery. He had honored his parents. He was not guilty of stealing or bearing false witness. So Jesus, he knew that. He was the omniscient God. He goes for the jugular. He says, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And so when God tells this rich man to sell all that he has and distribute it to the poor, That commandment, you shall not covet, because he loved his things, pricked his human heart. Now, Jesus was not teaching salvation by works. Give him credit, please. He's the omniscient God. He just told a parable right before this between the tax gatherer and the Pharisee to show that we're not saved by human effort or any human work, but only by the mercy of God Almighty. But he's doing the exact same thing the Apostle Paul is doing, and that he's using the law to reveal us, to show us that we might be terrified in a holy fear, flee to God for forgiveness. Paul will say it this way to the church at Galatia, therefore the law was our tutor, the King James says our schoolmaster, to lead us to faith in Christ. And so God used this law, thou shall not covet like he used it or wanted to use it in the heart of the rich young ruler to convict Paul. Now that's how the law reveals sin. Secondly, I want you to see how the law provokes sin, how it provokes sin. We, he just said here at the end of verse 7, I would not have known about coveting if the law had said you shall not covet. But not only does God's law reveal sin, it provokes, it stimulates, it arouses sin. We just read that in verse 5, that the sinful passions were aroused by the law. Now in verse 8, but sin, taking opportunity, and the word opportunity is a very 
picturesque first century word. It was a military term where they had a certain place for a base of operations. But sin, finding a base of operations, how? Through the commandment, not commandments, but commandment. Paul's going to highlight this one commandment that God used. Now, in one sense, all of the commandments deal with inward behavior. But there is something about that commandment, thou shall not covet, that really highlights inward attitude, inward behavior. In fact, the word covet, he says, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every, t- every kind. That word covet is translated in other places, like in James 4, as lust. There is something about the forbidden fruit that is attractive to our fallen sinful nature. We begin to covet, we begin to lust after things that God says are wrong. We see a sign, private, do not enter. And we want to go in and take a peek. Or a three-year-old child, their mother says, don't touch the vase. That child just wants to get so close, they, they all but want to touch it like it's the most important item on the face of the earth. That's what the law does sometimes. St. Augustine, he wrote a powerful work called Confessions. And he describes how at the age of 16, he and some of his friends went and raided a pear tree. Not because they wanted the pears, but just for the sake of doing it. In fact, they fed the pears to the pigs. Let me read a portion of his testimony. He said, I stole something which I had in plenty and of much better quality. My desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and doing of what was wrong. I had no motive for my wickedness except wickedness itself. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved the self-destruction. I loved my fall, not the object for which I had fallen, but my fall itself. Was it possible, he asked himself, was it possible to take pleasure in what was illicit for no reason other than the fact that it was not allowed? And Paul's answer to St. Augustine would be from this verse, absolutely, yes. Why did Achan covet that mantle from Shinar and the gold and the silver shekels that he could neither spend nor that piece of cloth that he could wear? All he could do was hide it in the tent. Why did he want it so bad? Why was Ananias and Sapphira so bent on receiving the approval coveting the approval of the apostles so much so that they would lie not just to the apostles but to God the Holy Spirit. Why did Ahab in 1 Kings 21 want another vineyard when he already had acres of vineyard? Why did Demas in 2 Timothy abandon Paul because he loved the world so much? Because the Lord said, do not covet and it stirs up something in you. Now, it's going to be very important that we understand that unless we are filled with the Spirit, then that covetous Spirit will win out. And this is why, again, I don't want you to miss a single message in this series. Look again, sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced coveting of every kind. The law saying you can't have that thing is not the problem. The problem is with our own fallen sinful nature that covets what God says we shouldn't have. Why? Because we seek happiness over holiness. 
the law just merely defines what the problem is. And so there's the law of God that reveals sin. There's the law of God that provokes sin. Third and finally, I want you to think about the law of God that condemns sin. Pick up his argument here on the end of verse 8. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Now, I take it that Paul is describing his experiences as, an, as a young boy and as he moved into adolescence. In his childhood innocence, uh, when he thought of the God, law of God, it didn't really affect him. In fact, he says, I was once alive apart from the law. But in that process, as he learned the law of God, as, as a young Jewish man, he would have become bar mitzvahed, and they start the process around the age of seven, and it comes to completion at the age of 12. Bar is the Hebrew word for son. Mitzvah, the Hebrew word for commandment. You become a son of the law. And as that process unfolded in his own graphic words, he says, when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. That's when I fell under the judgment of sin and I felt death and alienation from God. I can tell you the time, the place, and the exact thing I did when that happened to me. At the age of five, my parents had me memorize the Ten Commandments. Now, the Catholic version of the Ten Commandments is a little bit different from the Bible version. There's one commandment that's different. They take the commandment on idolatry, they just kind of lose that one, and, and then they take covetousness and they double it. And they take that last commandment and break it into two. But in either case didn't affect me. I had memorized those commandments. And I understood something about coveting, that you're, there are certain things you're not to take. And on one occasion, I was six years old, and I took something that my mother told me not to touch. And I ate that food. It wasn't an apple. <laughs> I ate that food, and I felt so guilty within. I felt so ashamed. And had maybe someone been there to take me through the plan of salvation, I might have responded. And by the way, parents, you should be sensitive to that moment. You should be praying for that moment where God the Holy Spirit is showing you that your, your child by the Spirit of God using the law of God is coming under conviction because that is a ripe, sensitive time in which to teach them about the forgiveness through the cross. So Paul says in this commandment, verse 10, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it it killed me. That's what happens when we break God's law. Taking an opportunity through the commandment, it deceives you, and it kills you. We're deceived when we think that we can somehow break God's law without consequence. And sin can deceive in so many different ways. Let me share with you at least six ways as I thought about it this week. First of all, sin can deceive in terms of the satisfaction that it will bring. Sin will say, I'll satisfy that desire. This will make you feel fulfilled. And it does for a moment. But then it comes back stronger and it says, well, 
I can satisfy it again. And it is, but this time for a shorter season. And before you know it, you are enslaved to sin. So sin will deceive you in terms of the satisfaction that it brings. Sin will deceive you in terms of the consequences it will bear. God said, from any tree of the garden you may eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day you eat it, you will die. And Satan comes along and he says, you surely will not die. Sin portrays itself as being safe. That there are no consequences that are death-like. But Paul says to the church at Galatia, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows. This he will also reap. And so God's law of sowing and reaping cannot be eliminated any more than God's law of gravity. In the law of sowing and reaping, you reap the same as that which you sow. If you sow a, a, a seed from an apple tree, it doesn't produce a pear tree. You reap the same thing that you sow. You cannot sow discord and reap unity. You cannot sow impurity and reap holiness. You cannot sow to the flesh and reap from the Spirit. But not only do you reap what you sow, you will reap later than you sow. You put a seed in the ground, you'll come back five minutes later, there's no action. You come back a day later, there's no action. But eventually there will be action. There'll be a tiny little sprout. And it will eventually grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And this is why many people sin. And they think they can sin with no consequence. Well, nothing's happened. Everything's okay. But you give it enough time and the evil seeds you sow will eventually sprout. Not only do you reap what you sow and later than you sow, you will reap more than you sow. You take one little seed of a tomato and up comes a plant and on it are six tomatoes. You'll reap much more than you sow. Now, sin will deceive you as to its consequences. God can forgive you for your sin, but he cannot wipe out the law of sowing and reaping. The harvest goes right on. I was reading this week in Psalm 99 and it struck my attention. There the psalmist says, Oh Lord God, you answered them. You are forgiving God to them, speaking of Israel, and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. God forgave them, but then God brought them to the woodshed. God forgave Moses for his sin of pride, but he did not go into the promised land. You can take a nail and pound it into a piece of wood and pull it out, but there's a scar in that piece of wood. And sometimes while God may forgive us, we have to carry the scars of our decisions throughout this life. Having worked with college students for 12 years, I would get into some interesting conversations with them. And they would say, oh, Brogy, I'm free to do whatever I want. If I want to smoke my weed, I can smoke it. If I want to drink my liquor, I can drink it. If I want to have sex with other women, I can do it people like you, you just cramp our style. I would love to get into these discussions with them, especially when we're in one of those high-rise dorms. I'll say, yes, certainly you're free, but you're not free to escape the consequences. You're free to jump out that window, but you're not free to escape the consequences of jumping out that window. It will dash you to pieces because as soon as you jump out, you become a slave to the law of gravity. Well, I don't like that law. I don't understand that law. God could care less whether you like it or understand it. There are consequences. 
And we are not to presume on the grace of God. And so Paul says this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to be death for me. For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment, it deceived me. It deceives you in regards to the satisfaction it will bring. It will deceive you in regards to the consequences it will yield. It will deceive you regarding its confidentiality. People think, oh, no one will know what I've done. No one will see what I've watched. No one will realize that I cheated on that test. No one will know that I manipulated the expense report. No one will find out. So tens of millions of American men are glued to pornography on the internet and they think no one will find out. Sin deceives. It will tell you that what you do in private will have no consequence. But it's just a matter of time before eventually the consequences come. In fact, Jesus said, for nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be made known and come to the light. The Bible is clear that sooner or later your sin will find you out. Fifth, sin deceives regarding its shame. Sin says that what you did and what you thought is not really that bad after all. And sin will deceive people so much so that what God calls wrong, they will eventually call right. And that's what we are seeing all across America today. Things that God calls evil and an abomination, we are calling a woman's choice and a person's freedom. And God describes in Romans 1 a nation that is in freefall. We studied in Romans 1 when God abandons a nation. There is not only the future wrath of God that is to come, but there's the wrath of God that is being revealed. And God is judging our nation with wrath because we refuse to give Him praise or thanks three times over. He says God gave them over such that men would lie with men and women with women, such that there'd be rampant immorality and all kinds of evil. And so we think, oh, there's no shame in it. No, that is a society that has been deceived by sin. Six, the worst deception is that sin in the end will bring death. And it will deceive you concerning your destiny. You'll say, well, everybody's doing it. And if everybody's doing it, certainly God can't judge everybody. That's what they said in Noah's day. God understands my weakness. God will overlook my sin. He is a God of grace and forgiveness. It doesn't matter. That's what Jude 4 says. They turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Listen, in the end, it will kill you. You can be deceived to thinking you're headed for heaven. But in the end, he'll say you're actually headed for hell. Do not be deceived, Paul writes, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Does that mean if you've done some of those things, you cannot be saved? Of course not. The next verse says, but such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ. John will put it in these words, no one who is born of God practices sin. And I underscore that word practice. It's in a perfect tense to practice over and over and over and over again without end. 
And if you can practice your sin without repentance, without remorse, without guilt, without shame, you are a classic example of someone who may think they are right with God, but you're headed for the lake of fire. So then, Paul says, verse 12, look at your Bible. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. The problem is not with the law. Do you see how it started? This section started with a question. Is the law sin? Then he goes through this great careful explanation, and now he says plainly, no, the law is holy. It's righteous. It is good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with our sinful fallen nature. Therefore, verse 13, final question. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Meganoita, may it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. And so a man who's caught in the act of murdering, who breaks man's law, he has no one to blame but himself. He can't blame the law. He can only blame himself. And when we break God's law, either written on the tablets of the human heart or on stone tablets, we have no one to blame but ourselves. And Paul said when he began to read the written law, he knew how utterly sinful indeed that he was. Now, how can we apply this text? Well, let me suggest three things as we close. Number one, the law of God reveals the character of God. The law of God reveals the character of God. Only someone who is absolutely holy and righteous and perfect and good could create a standard that is absolutely holy and righteous and perfect and good. And so the law is a revelation of God Himself. If you want to know what God is like, look at His law. How is it that the Gentile who never had a Bible in Romans 2.15, when he did what was right, his conscience affirmed him. When he did what was wrong, his conscience disapproved him. Who was he pleasing or displeasing? The God who made him. The law of God is a revelation of God himself. And that's why God Almighty said to Joshua to meditate on the law day and night, and then you will have success. That's why the psalmist could say in Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. That's why Psalm 19 can say the law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. To know the righteous, good, and holy law of God is to know Him Himself. And when you follow the law of God, God will open up His character to you. But when you ignore or repudiate or abandon the law of God, eventually you will be abandoned by God. I also learned that the law reveals the sinfulness of sin. Notice again the last part of verse 13. It reveals the sinfulness of sin so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Now set aside the law of God and sin is no longer that bad. And again, that's what we're doing in America. And that's why immorality is rampant. And that's why Americans are entertaining themselves on things that God calls evil. 
And so they just say that homosexuality and premarital sex and smoking weed in Colorado at their big convention yesterday and fornicating and getting drunk and all these things are not sinful but just natural. But when you accept the commandment of God, then all of a sudden you realize how bad you are and what great need you have. And when you come to that point, can the law help you? No, it cannot. The law cannot save you. The law cannot make you good. It can only reveal you. The function of the law given on Mount Sinai was not to save you. But the blood spilt on Mount Calvary can forgive you. The law is our school teacher to lead us to faith in Jesus Christ. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your holy word. May we, with the psalmist, recognize that your commandments are right and true and righteous altogether. I pray today for some dear soul that has come in or someone who may be listening to me. As I have been speaking, You've brought death into their heart. Help them, O God, not to ignore that. Help them to see that as a blessing from You, that the convicting power of the Holy Spirit is to show them their need for Jesus Christ. Help someone today not to make an excuse for their sin or to rationalize it, but to face it. For it is not those, You said, who are well that need a doctor, but those that are sick. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Help someone in simple childlike faith to realize that the Lord Jesus perfectly in Himself fulfilled all the requirements of the law, every jot and tittle, and demonstrating Himself as the sinless Son of God was able to take the penalty for our breaking the law, death. And then you raised Him from the dead, declaring to all men that He is Lord, such that whoever will call on His name will be saved. Help someone today to know that salvation is not earned, but it is received humbly as a gift. Have you ever done that? Do you know that you know that you know that heaven is your home? You probably do not if you think salvation is by works. You've never been saved. It doesn't matter how many aisles you've walked, how many preachers' hands you've shaked, how many times you've been baptized. If your faith is not in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that has produced a new creation, then I would invite you even now to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, thank You for Your law. Thank You that it represents Your goodness and Your best for Your people. As we continue to unfold these portions of Scripture, we pray that You would teach us how to carry out the law, not in our own power, but through the Holy Spirit whom you gave us as our helper. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. For a copy of today's message entitled, License to Sin, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or use the Search the Scriptures app for iPhones and Androids by visiting your appropriate app store. Do you have a question about the Bible or about living the Christian life? 
Why not ask Dr. Brogy? Tuesday mornings at 11 Eastern, Dr. Brogy hosts a radio program entitled The Bible Line. You can call in and have him answer your question. Just call 877-924-7980 for The Bible Line. And be sure to listen online at his church's radio station, WAGP.net. Next time, we'll take a look at the struggle between the old sin nature or flesh and the new spirit that dwells inside. Join us then as we search the scriptures.